Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application learning product on the market. If you want a full product-by-product and feature-by-feature breakdown of all the application layering products on the market, check out whatmatrix.com, and I will be updating that application layering matrix on the site pretty soon, so keep an eye out for that. And finally, the podcast is also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you can use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, and more. Now let's get into some news. This week, many people pointed out that one of the patches released during the February Patch Tuesday by Microsoft, KB4524244, all of a sudden just disappeared from the update catalog. On last week's episode, I mentioned that this month's patches were larger than usual, and there were actually more patches than usual too. This was an oddity because Microsoft moved towards roll-up patches some time ago, and this one contained some standalone patches. The pulled patch was one of those standalone patches, which was described as addressing an issue in which a third-party unified extensible firmware interface, or UEFI, boot manager might expose UEFI-enabled computers to a security vulnerability being taken away unceremoniously. That description that accompanied the patch in the catalog led to a lot of speculation after it was pulled. When the patch was available, it did not list Windows 10 version 1909, but it still did appear in the catalog for 1909. ComputerWorld.com reported the patch wreaked havoc on many PCs, most notably HP PCs, HP PCs with Ryzen processors. HP owners with Secure Boot enabled reported that their PCs wouldn't reboot normally, and when forced, the HP BIOS said it detected an unauthorized change to the Secure Boot keys and had to restore. Which frankly... A significant change to UEFI and the BIOS could very well trigger Secure Boot or even something like BitLocker. And in this case, it looks like it very well did trigger the HP mechanism. It has been rumored online that the patch was to block Kaspersky Rescue Disk, which is a product that will let you boot your computer even if your PC's internals have been compromised. In order to use Kaspersky Rescue Disk, like other recovery boot disks, you have to have physical access to the PC. The problem is that an older version of the Kaspersky Rescue Disk allowed attackers with physical access to your machine to boot the PC into a potentially harmful operating system, even if you have Secure Boot enabled. Secure Boot is supposed to make it impossible to use a recovery disk to boot into any operating system that hasn't been pre-approved, but this older version of the Kaspersky Rescue Disk didn't follow the Secure Boot rules. It's stated in the article that Microsoft signed the old Kaspersky Rescue Disk program, 
so Secure Boot continued to recognize old Kaspersky Rescue Discs as valid up until earlier this month. KB452424 and KB4502496 add the old Kaspersky Rescue Disc routine to your PC's Secure Boot forbidden signature database, so it won't be recognized as a Microsoft-approved app. But for reasons that aren't clear at this time, monkeying around with the UEFI secure boot restrictions broke other programs, most notably the boot routine for HP's PCs with Ryzen processors. And there may be other damage out there too caused by these patches. It would be interesting to see if there's any other forms of encryptions or encryption products that also get triggered by this patch. This week, Hans Brender shared info on his blog for people using Windows 10 in the Insider Channel version 19564.1005 that the OneDrive Next Generation Sync client has stopped working. It looks like the app consumes about 35% CPU power and then no icon appears in the notification area and you get no error message, it's just the sync doesn't work. Based on the most recent update to his blog, the only way to work around sounds like you need to uninstall the old version before taking the update in the Insider release. So if you're using the Insider releases, you should probably uninstall OneDrive before taking that update. Microsoft are set to begin rolling out the new Windows 10 optional updates experience that allows you to pick and choose what non-security updates and drivers you wish to install. According to bleepingcomputer.com, users will be able to access the new optional updates interface through a link in Windows Updates titled View Optional Updates. Once clicked, users will be shown a list of optional drivers and updates that they can install if they wish to. A list will appear and you can then just check which ones to install. The article says this is new, but I feel like I've been getting these for a while now on my Windows 10 machines. As part of the rollout that started this week, Microsoft is allowing hardware developers to mark their drivers as either automatic or manual to specify how drivers should be delivered to Windows users. If a driver is set to automatic, for example, it will be included in Microsoft's normal Windows update experience and automatically downloaded and installed on applicable systems. If it's manual, it's going to appear as one of those optional update that I just talked about that you can check the box for and install yourself. On a previous episode of the podcast, I talked about a preview release of an Office app for Android. It's an app that combines... Word, Excel, and PowerPoint and allows for a more seamless integration and workflows across the different apps in the Office suite on your mobile device. The good news is that the Office app just became available for Android officially this week. At the time of the previous story when I reported, an Apple iOS version was talked about but not yet available. According to a report from Engadget, the iOS version is now out of beta too. Just a couple of notes, the Android app has limited tablet support and there's no iPad specific version right now. If you're interested in trying it out for yourself, you can download it from the Play Store or from the Apple App Store, depending on what kind of device you own, obviously. Master Packager version 20.1.7353 is available now. 
Some of the new features include a master wrapper courtesy of the PowerShell app deployment toolkit. If you want to check the video episode of the podcast this week on YouTube, you can see a brief demo of this master wrapper feature. It's pretty cool. From within the UI, you're able to generate a pretty handy wrapper for the package that you just created. If you don't want to watch the video version of the podcast, or maybe you've never watched it before and you are interested in it, but you don't know where to go to find it, go to 5bytespodcast.com. In the episode guide, navigate to episode 112 and click on the reference links. Alternatively, if you just want to click directly onto the video, there's also a link to the YouTube video within that episode guide for each episode. With this new version of Master Packager, you can also automatically add missing standard actions. Plus, there's multiple bug fixes and other improvements too. Thomas Kotzing shared some really useful information on Twitter this week. If you've noticed slow boot times in Windows 10 with the Citrix VDA and UPM enabled, it turns out that this is not a UPM issue. It's not even a Citrix VDA issue really, it's not even necessarily a Windows 10 issue inherently. Thomas shared an article related to an SMB setting. If you're encountering this type of slowness on a Windows 10 VDA, check out the registry setting that I'll share with this episode, which again is episode 112, and you'll find it on our reference links on 5bytespodcast.com. So if you do have this slowness, you'll need to check out this registry setting. It might help you out with that. In a follow-up to a story I covered last week, Paul Stancil shared a Citrix article for those currently getting blocked for Citrix cloud sites in China. The issue says it's due to an ISP's inability to resolve the cloud.com sites, but in this case, I would imagine it's that they're purposely blocking it. And the suggested workaround, interestingly, is to use the DNS over HTTPS feature in Firefox. Now, if you've been listening to my podcast over the last three months in particular, you'll have heard me talk about this new protocol quite a bit. It's very interesting to see it coming to the rescue already in this instance. It's very cool. You can check out DNS over HTTPS, or DOE, for the abbreviated version of the name, in the latest version of Firefox, and Google are also getting in on the act in future releases too. Cisco this week said that by 2023, machine-to-machine communications will make up 50%, or about $14.7 billion, of all network connections compared to 33% or 6.1 billion in 2018 and 3.1% in 2017. So those numbers paint a pretty picture there. Even between 2017 and 2018, there was a considerable spike. Networkworld.com shared some projections from Cisco about network usage between now and 2023 that includes... Average broadband speeds will rise from 46 megabits per second to 110 megabits per second. 45% of all network devices will be mobile connected, so 3G and below, 4G, 5G are low power wide area. And 55% will be wired or connected over Wi-Fi. Average global Wi-Fi connection speeds will more than triple from 30 megabits per second in 2018 to 92 megabits per second in 2023. By 2023, the average global mobile speed will be 43.9 megabits per second, 
which is up from 13.2 megabits per second in 2018, so 3.3 times faster. Global 5G connections will be 10.6% of total mobile connections in 2023. 5G speeds will be 13 times higher than the average mobile connection by 2023. Globally, there will be 29.3 billion network devices by 2023, which will be up from 18.4 billion in 2018. So, so an increase of over 10 billion from 2018 to 2023 on number of connected devices. Hopefully the world cops on and gets to a standard of IP version 6 before then. On the Wi-Fi 6 front, Cisco forecasts Wi-Fi 6 hotspots will grow 13-fold from 2020 through 2023 and will make up 11% of all public Wi-Fi hotspots. This week, Microsoft has urged administrators to disable the SMB version 1 network communication protocol on Exchange servers to provide better protection against malware threats and attacks. Ned Pyle has stated that there's no need to run the nearly 30-year-old SMB version 1 protocol with Exchange 2013, 2016, or 2019. SMB version 1 isn't safe and you lose key protections offered by later SMB protocol versions. Much like the world needing to cop on to IP version 6, enterprises really need to cop on to SMB version 1 and just knock it out. And now... For this episode, a hot job. The role this week is for an application packaging and deployment engineer for the Unified Endpoints team at the United Nations International Computing Center. The company state that they've been growing fast and need to ensure they're able to provide excellent support to their customers as they expand. They are looking for an application packaging and deployment engineer to join the Unified Endpoints team. The team is part of the Azure and Microsoft 365 Services Unit of the United Nations International Computing Center. The candidate should be a good team player, customer focused, enjoy solving technical issues, be humble, love learning, have fluency in the English language, excellent written and verbal communication skills, good understanding of Windows installer packaging and AppV sequencing, a good understanding of SCCM or the new endpoint management, application deployment tools, and also be confident writing PowerShell, and also be confident scripting in PowerShell. Your responsibilities will include managing customers via the phone, live chat, and email, contributing to the development of the team through daily stand-up meetings, weekly meetings, process documents, and wikis, Create and validate Windows installer, MSI, MST, and AppV packages. Management of production application deployments. Take part in service delivery processes, including incident management, request management, change management. Learning new technologies and sharing what you know with the team. Provide on-call support for MEM, CM, slash SECM, and Intune. And out-of-hours work is not common, but it can happen, so you should be open to that. The required experience includes three plus years of experience of application deployment management with SCCM or Intune, three plus years of experience of Windows installer and AppV packaging and troubleshooting, Windows 10 experience, experience of Admin Studio, Install Shield, Master Packager, or equivalent product. So I believe the 
center is located in Geneva, but I'm not entirely sure if the role requires to be there or not. If you're interested in this role, you can email your CV to markallen at A-L-L-E-N, N is in Nancy, M as in Mark, at unicc.org. So that's allenm at unicc.org. And now, this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Johann Schravilius, I'm sorry, I completely butchered that name, shared an absolutely beautiful custom user interface for use in SCCM task sequences. That's it. I mean, it doesn't sound very impressive because it's so short to describe, but you've really got to see this. You should check out the video version of this podcast on YouTube this week to see it for yourself. It is very, very pretty, and I used to automate all my home machine builds. I used to have my own SCCM up and running in the lab, but I never bothered to customize the interface. Seeing this one inspires me to want to set all that back up again and customize the UI. It's pretty slick. And speaking of Johans, Johan at deploymentresearch.com, which I've been featuring almost weekly so far this year, shared a script for outputting task sequence progress into a CSV file while your desktops are imaging. That could be really handy if you're creating your own custom reporting on status. And finally, Eric from zenapblog.com shared some scripts on his GitHub repo that automatically creates and exports internal PKI certificates into various formats. So this could be really handy if you're, I don't know, signing packages, setting up some web services in your lab, or maybe you need to work with the Java deployment rule set, which requires some signing too. It's always a pain in the butt, and I usually rely on PowerShell scripting myself. And that's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening.